Kyle Bradford-Jones is an associate clinical professor in family and preventative medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine. He graduated from the Medical College of Wisconsin in 2009 and completed his residency in family medicine at the University of Utah in 2012. Since then, he's worked at the Neurobehavior Home Program, a clinical program for individuals with a developmental disability, where he leads the primary care and utilization management teams. He is the author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Fallible, a memoir of a young physician's struggle with mental illness. We started with how he realized that he was struggling with his mental health, how it has become an asset in his patient care and caring for his colleagues and trainees, some surprising data about the frequency of mood disorders and suicidal thoughts in our trainees, and how we need to give ourselves some grace in light of all the paradoxes we're forced to grapple with in healthcare. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Make no mistake, digital marketing is a science. Advice Media has created a proven roadmap that gets you from where your practice is now to where you want it to be. They call this their pyramid of success. Thousands of clients have proven that their six-stage approach is the optimal way for attracting new patients and retaining current ones. They get it. We're busy and don't have the time to be a digital marketing expert. I don't. We have lives to change. Give them just 30 minutes to consult with you. They would bet that we're doing things really well. But there still might be some areas where we can improve. That's where they come in. So just for spending the time, they'll give you a $60 Amazon gift card. You've got nothing to lose. So book your consult today. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. That's drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. Kyle Bradford-Jones, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's dive right into it. So I mentioned it on the previous show, and that was my big outing, but I personally just started going to therapy. And the reason was I wasn't the husband and father that I could be. And I never saw myself this way, right? I never saw myself as someone who would need therapy, someone that would need help. Just the same mentality we have with everything else, just push through it and figure it out. But I think the pandemic has laid bare a lot of things about society, about our health system and about ourselves. And so this was the point at which I decided it would be a good idea. And I don't even know if I would have considered an option if my wife hadn't started going to therapy. And she was actually the one that found me a therapist. I don't even know if I would have even <laughs> made the time to look for someone. You know, it was a great decision. So for you, how and when did you realize that you were having some issues with your mental health. And by the way, actually, as I was formulating these questions, I wasn't even sure how to ask that question. How do I refer to that? like mental health issues, mental health struggles? Like what's the preferred nomenclature there? You know, when you write a book about mental illness and mental health struggles and everything, you have to come up with every which way. So you <laughs> so it's not the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So whatever is fine <laughs> <Thesaurus>. with me. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but, you know, first of all, good for you and good for your wife for taking that on because you kind of alluded to this, we each tell a story about ourselves. And as we age, or as we have more experience or different things, that story needs to change sometimes, but often doesn't. And so, you know, like you say, you never 
saw yourself as someone who needed to see a therapist, but that's okay. The story is changing a little bit and that's all right. Now, for me personally, first started having problems was when I was an undergraduate student. I always had an anxious personality, but it had never been a big issue. In fact, it was probably a positive because it motivated me. It brought the best out of me. And then when I was in my undergraduate years, it kind of went too far, so to speak. So, you know, I was newly married. I was, of course, trying to get perfect grades and do research and volunteer and work, et cetera, et cetera, to try to get into medical school. Sorry, you were volunteering to get into medical school, just to be clear. You weren't doing <laughs> it because you're a upstanding citizen and you wanted to make contributions to the world. Exactly. Okay, me too. <laughs> Don't hate the player, hate the game. Okay. Exactly. I think we're all that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was working at this group home for individuals with mental illness. And I was working a night shift. So it's quiet. It's the middle of the night. I'm there by myself, all the residents in the home are asleep, and I had a panic attack. You know, I was thinking of all the stuff I had to do and trying to stay on top of it, but of course, it's the middle of the night and I'm exhausted and trying to work through all of the stresses I was facing. It was really that classic description of my heart started pounding, I got lightheaded, the vision narrowed, I had that impending sense of doom. So it lasted for a few minutes and I was terrified. I had no idea what it was. I figured it was something with my heart, but I was able to kind of make it through the shift. And then the very next day went to the doctor and said, I have a problem with my heart. And he listened to me and with all the story and he said, well, I don't think that's your heart. I think that's anxiety. And that was one of those moments where my story changed. The story I told about myself changed, but it wasn't like a negative thing or something where I was in denial. Like it just seemed, okay, well, it's anxiety. Great. How do we deal with that? I feel sometimes as a physician, I'm reluctant to tell patients that. And often actually they're the ones that bring it up. They're like, Hey, do you think it could be anxiety? And I'm like, actually, yeah, <laughs> I've been yeah, thinking, I that thinking that <laughs> this whole time. Should I be so reluctant to say it? I don't know. Yeah. But no, it wasn't like that for me. It was okay. just, okay, yeah. great. How do we handle this now? And went on medication, had therapy, thankfully made it into medical school, throughout medical school, the continuing challenges that one does during medical training and education. Sorry to interrupt, but you said, and then you started medical school. Was that something that needed to be disclosed to the medical school? Was that something that gave you pause about like the application process? Like they're going to find out. Was that on your mind at all? No. And whether it should have been or not, I don't know. But no, it was just one of those things where it's like, well, you know, this is what I'm working through and that's fine. And I'll Got just it. do my thing and, and not worry about it. So all throughout medical school, I tried different medications. I had other therapists, but I continued to struggle with a lot of anxiety and difficulties, especially through the clinical years and dealing with attendings that aren't always the nicest or the most understanding. And it wasn't until I got into residency in family medicine a few months in that all of a sudden I was hit with a deep depression as well. You know, as we all know, anxiety and depression very commonly go together, but it had been years with severe anxiety before that depression came out for me. And it was, again, the stressors, it was the 30 hour shifts, not sleeping, it was not seeing my family, et cetera, et cetera. All the, the stressors that we know of that kind of brought out the depression. And throughout residency, again, the same thing. I had more therapy. I changed medications a couple of other times. And yet 
as so many of us as medical professionals do, I was able to hide it, not necessarily from myself, but from others. I was able to function well enough and put on a good enough face that it wasn't obvious or apparent to others how much I was struggling. And so after graduating residency, and I've now been a member of the faculty at the University of Utah School of Medicine for nine years, wrote this book when I was having some of my residency colleagues at the time read it. And they were like, are you kidding me? How in the world did we not know this? Even though it's not necessarily something I was ever ashamed of, I still wasn't sure how people would respond to it, to knowing that I was getting treatment and going through therapy for anxiety and depression. You hear that all the time in the story of physicians that die by suicide, right? Like their colleagues are like, wow, I had no idea that this person was struggling like that. Like just came out of the blue. It's, yeah. And like anybody with suicide or whatnot, or all of a sudden, maybe you're in a psychiatric hospital or whatnot. And you're thinking, really him, her, the, yeah, there's no way. And that's part of it too, actually, I think is the story that we tell ourselves about mental illness and what that looks like. I think often back to my grandparents where my father's mother, looking back, obviously had some severe depression, but of course at the time they didn't really talk about it or know much about it. And at the time, if you said mental illness, they thought of the homeless guy walking down the street, mumbling to himself. Yeah. You know? They think thought disorder, not mood disorder. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, well, I don't do that. Therefore, there's no way I can have a mental illness. Yeah. We had someone a few generations back who was institutionalized in my family for melancholy, it was called. You know, it yes. wasn't called depression. It was called melancholy. That's how long ago it was. But as physicians, we do have higher rates of mood disorders than the lay public, higher rate yeah. of dying by suicide. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, we have had a suicide rate two to three times higher than any other profession for a hundred years. Like it's not even anything new. It is worsening both the rates of mood disorders as well as deaths by suicide. And at least part of it is the nature of medicine itself, you know, where you are doing your best to help people who are suffering and they're coming to you and expecting you to fix it. And even despite our best efforts, oftentimes we can't do much about it or give meet their expectations. Then that's really hard on us. And obviously the different stressors that we face in the medical system that we have now with just all of the worsening of requests on our time that have nothing to do with caring for patients, you know, all of the things that we face and this also goes along with higher rates in the general public, too. And so there are a lot of cultural factors that affect them and affect us. And it's almost like we have inadvertently created a perfect storm to really harm each other, so to speak, or to face some of these real difficulties. And then we don't know what to do. And to your point earlier, we're nervous that you know, maybe our employer finds out or maybe our colleagues find out or whatever it is. And it's scary. And so then we may be more reluctant to seek treatment or help. And then it just keeps snowballing. So you just said we might be concerned that our colleagues might find out. We might be concerned that our patients find out. Clearly, not an issue for you when you <laughs> wrote a book about it. You you shouted it from the rooftop. You not only wrote a book, you're going on a publicity tour about that book. You want to make right. sure that everybody reads it. So you were not, <laughs> clearly, 
not concerned that people are going to find out about it because you want them to. But I mean, was that a concern about patients? Was that a concern about your colleagues? Maybe they might doubt your professional decision-making and your professional abilities if you admit to having these struggles. Yeah, absolutely. Those were big thoughts and concerns in my mind. I first started writing about my struggles in 2014 on various blogs, and it took me a long time of thinking about it before deciding to write about it and be more open. And in the end, I did the calculus, so to speak, and decided, hey, the potential positives outweigh the potential negatives, whether for my colleagues who may, like you say, doubt my decision making or my patients who may think there's no way I'm going to go see this guy. I think the opposite has happened. I think it really has opened up more discussion and conversation between other physicians and myself, between my patients, between many people in the general public. And almost immediately after that blog came out, I had a friend of mine who was one or two years behind me in residency. And he came up to me and said, I have been struggling with this for a long time. And finally, now that I know I'm not alone, I'm more willing to get treatment. And that was it. I was like, okay, great. I know that positive is coming of this and I'm just going to keep banging the desk and just use my experiences as an example so that we can talk about this more and hopefully help more people get the support they need. Are your patients coming up to you about this? Are your patients saying, I read your book and uh, it's effective, you know, have you heard it from them as well? You know, only from a few, not from very many. I also have kind of a unique practice where all of my patients have a developmental disability. And so most of them don't read well, but they're caregivers. It's, you know, a few of them have have read it, but you know, the two or three instances, again, it's been very positive. And I think if anything, it increases their trust in me because they're like, Hey, you know what this is, you You know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. You get it. Yeah. Actually I have tinnitus from like a Metallica concert in 1996. (laughs) I mean, I still remember the ringing in my head for the few days after that concert and it's still there. And so I see patients, I'm an ENT. I see patients with tinnitus and I feel like the fact that I have it and I can tell patients honestly that I have it allows me to connect with them better. I mean, sometimes it's terrifying for them when they're like, they've had it for a week and I'm like, well, I've had it for 25 years, probably not the best time to mention it, but it allows me to connect with them more. And then they trust me more. They take my advice more seriously. And also it gives me more insight into what they're experiencing. I get it more. So now I've got a whole spiel that I go through with them and I feel like it's to their benefit. So yes, it's a liability to me. It'd be great if I didn't have it. And actually there's a huge connection between mood and tinnitus, super strong connection. But you know, the fact that I do have it, it's not as much of a liability. So yeah, absolutely. It, it really does make that connection and people really do respond to it. You know, and oftentimes, whether it's tinnitus or depression or anxiety, they're surprised because we're doctors. We're not people. We're not yeah. supposed to have problems. It really opens up a lot, I think, in that physician-patient relationship. So we talked earlier about um, your colleagues finding out about it and and (laughs) reading about it in the book, were there any professional ramifications, right? Don't some state boards inquire about mental health? I mean, did yours, is there any potential issue there for seeking treatment? You know, it's a good question. And it's probably the biggest concern I hear from other physicians when we talk about this is the way the board questions are written. I can't 
get treatment. And there's a couple of aspects to that. First of all, the vast majority of states have changed the wording so that it is more like if you have an untreated physical or mental disorder that will impair your ability to practice medicine or, you know, something along those lines. There still are a couple of states that their wording is pretty strong and to the point of, hey, have you ever been treated for a mental illness? And again, those are in the process of changing. My particular state, I did reach out to them and was just asking them general questions of what happens if a physician does this or this? And, and they, the question in, in Utah where I practice is thankful, relatively innocuous and, and good, but still, I wanted to make sure. But also, I think I am a strong believer in if we have some sort of mental illness that we are not addressing, we are actually more likely to make errors and make costly mistakes to our patients. And so the, by not getting treatment for something that may be there, I think we're much more likely to get in trouble with the medical board by harming our patients. So in that sense, I, I'm a big proponent that, hey, you know what? Again, the potential positives outweigh any potential negatives. That actually was going to be my next question. Are there specific aspects of patient care that you saw improve after starting to look after your own mental health? And you kind of just answered that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know specific aspects, except that all the aspects in my life got better, <laughs> so to speak. I had a better relationship with my wife and my kids. I was better able to handle stress. I think I was I became more patient and a better listener. And, and so obviously all of those things play into patient care. And whether it's something specifically that I noticed with patients, maybe not, but that I noticed in basically all other relationships in my life. If there's a medical student listening and they're having mm -hmm. some difficulty, do you think that should influence their choice of specialty? Yeah, you know, I think that's an interesting question because obviously there are a lot of elements that go into what specialty you choose, I would say no. And the reason I say that is because you went into medicine for a reason. There's a certain picture in your head you have of what a doctor is. And if you pick a specialty that may have slightly less call or different hours, but it's something that doesn't interest you or doesn't get you jazzed, then it's going to be for the worse. You know, even if it is something where you do have to work long hours, but it's something that's interesting to you or that you are passionate about, I think you're going to be much the better for it. I'm not sure that I would encourage them to pick a specialty based on some of the struggles they've had. Well, I was thinking more like a super high acuity specialty like neurosurgery, right? Where mm, sure. patients tend to be super sick. You're in the operating room. Surgeries don't always go well. Like a lot of times you're there and deep trouble if they need you to begin with, yeah. you know, a specialty like that, as opposed to, I mean, no offense to my pathology colleagues, pathology, yeah. you know, there might be a surgeon yelling at you from the operating room. What's taking so long with my <laughs> specimen, but there's a very different lifestyle and decision-making yeah. and patient care that goes along with these. But to your point, like if this is what you're good at and this is what you love, you know what you're getting yourself into. That being said, I think every medical student listening, if there are any, hello, you should be aware that you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Like my <laughs> life in you know medical school, my experience with otolaryngology versus my experience in 
residency with otolaryngology versus my residency in 10 years of practice, private practice, very different. So at no point did I have insight into what the next stage was going to be like. But that being said. Absolutely. One example with the specialty. So, you know, I'm in family medicine for a little while during my third year, I was on the complete other end of the spectrum and I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon because I did a rotation and we did this heart transplant and it was so cool. And, you know, we did all of these cool things. And part of it was my mental health for why I didn't choose that. But mostly it was the people that I was around and realizing, I don't know that, no offense to cardiothoracic surgeons, this is very specific to the ones I interacted with, but these are not the people I want to be my people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the things that end up influencing our decisions that really shouldn't, right? Like yeah. you might yeah. be rotating on an ortho rotation and you know the chief resident is just a jerk, but at the different hospital where you didn't get the rotation, that chief resident is awesome. So like exactly. <laughs> that is something, yeah, it's crazy how that influences the direction of our life. No so you end up matching at a program in a different city, in a different specialty where you meet your significant other that you wouldn't have met if you like a whole Pandora's <laughs> yes. box, the, uh, you know, the butterfly effect. Okay. But back to mental health. So while you were doing research for the book, was there any interesting data that you came across or any surprising information that you came across? You know, I am surprised by how prevalent depression and anxiety is among students and residents. And it starts fast. 40% of residents of all specialties meet diagnostic criteria for depression, um, which is <laughs> unreal. not surprise me, yeah. And over 20% of them have considered suicide and 10% of medical 20 students- 20% of residents yeah. have considered suicide. Yeah, and 10% of medical students have considered suicide in the last two weeks which this is just mind boggling. And so since it starts in medical school, before you are kind of ensconced in all of the clinical minutia, so to speak, and you're doing a lot of the classroom teaching, things start to change. You wonder, my goodness, what are we doing? <laughs> and I wish I had a good answer in terms of why, when someone enters medical school and they have the same risk of mental illness as the general population. And within two years, they have a much higher risk of having a mental illness. What is going on? We are what? monsters. Exactly. It's true. Yeah. It's interesting. I do think there is somewhat of a selection bias where if you are a type A personality or a little more anxious and driven at baseline, you're probably more likely to go into medicine and then maybe more likely to struggle with the stressors that you face. But that's definitely not the whole story. There is a lot more that we are doing to ourselves. Actually, that's one of the things that came out very early on with my therapy was that like my expectations of myself are so high that when I don't meet them, like it becomes problematic. That's an issue for me. I mean, what percent of medical students and residents do you think are holding themselves to these standards? But also not only holding themselves to those standards, but not getting the feedback that they are meeting or exceeding. Like it's something that I think is just so critical for our trainees is just reminding them what a great job they're doing. We see you, like we see what you're doing. You're doing amazing things. You're taking great care of your patients. But that being said, what do we remember? You might hear from your chief, from your chairman every week, you're such an asset, you're doing a great job. 
But every so often you hear, you know what, that grand rounds could have been a little more upbeat, a little more interesting. That third slide was a little confusing. And that's what you take. Oh, that third slide. Oh, you know, <laughs> exactly. and that's what you're going to take home with you. And that's just how we're designed. Yeah, that type A, I think there's got to be some selection bias, but we're clearly making things worse. You know, it's interesting you say that about your own expectations and your therapist. So the very first therapist I saw, we talked for an hour and a half or whatever. And he said, I think you have a Superman complex. And in my mind, I'm thinking that makes a lot of sense. And then I said, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) And for whatever reason that I didn't want. (laughs) And he's like, well, First of all, he talks about my expectations and exactly what you were just saying. And, he's like, and you're wearing a Superman hat. Like you are advertising <laughs> this. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I guess you have a point. <laughs> yeah. So, Kyle, in the book, you go through these paradoxes that are expected of us in medicine. So can you read that excerpt for us, please? Doctors live in an antagonistic dichotomy. They need a thick skin, but a soft heart. A sharp mind amidst extreme fatigue, a compassionate soul with a firm demeanor, and complete selflessness at the expense of mental and physical health. The messages medical students get are harsh. Don't be weak. Dedicate yourself to the care of the patient at all costs. Don't question your attending. Ignore the fact that you don't get to eat or sleep. And remember that leaving the hospital is abandoning your patient. Don't do too little, because you need to rule out all the scary diseases, but don't do more than necessary, because over-testing and over-treating is also harmful to patients. See patients more quickly to maximize billing and revenue, but don't skimp on your time with them, because they need to give us good satisfaction scores. Make sure you get good marks on your quality measures, but don't ignore all the other aspects of caring for your patient just to focus on those metrics. Follow this treatment protocol to a T, but personalize your care. Even the brightest and strongest don't stand up well to such contradictory expectations. So how do you feel about those paradoxes? It's tough. I think in the medical field, so many of us, if not all of us, have felt that push and pull of you are being asked to do one thing and the exact opposite. And How in the world do you do that? That is a cause of a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety of, again, with going back to our expectations of ourselves, we expect ourselves to meet both of those paradoxes and it just doesn't work. It can't happen. And in my life, that has been a driver of a lot of stress for me. In the last couple of years, I have come to give myself much more of a break, but My mantra has become, allow yourself some grace. I was just going to say, give yourself some grace. Yeah, exactly. And so that is something that I really have taken to heart. And I can take a step back and say, I'm not meeting these expectations because it's impossible. (laughs) And it's okay. (laughs) I'm going to do my best and I'm going to be happy with that. I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier. We are talking about our trainees and how the rate of thinking about suicide is so high. What do you think we can do? to change the system other than burn it down and start from scratch, which realistically not going to happen. Not going to (laughs) happen. Right. (laughs) Right. I really see that as like evolution in evolution. It's really hard to get rid of a structure rather than change it a little bit and then build on top of it. So what do you think needs to change so that we don't have this 
mental health crisis in our trainees. Our colleagues is a different story because they're in a different position of leverage and power, but the trainees who are the most vulnerable, what can we do to better look after them? You know, just a couple of things. So first of all, when I attend family medicine residents, I try to find just a quiet moment and say, how are you doing? It's amazing how often that opens the floodgates, so to speak, because first of all, they know that I have dealt with the stress. They know I've dealt with anxiety and depression. They know that I know what it's like to work the 30 hour shift or or whatever, and have a patient die that you were really close to or whatever it is. Them knowing that they just open up and you can tell, even though that doesn't change the system itself, you can see a change in them that, okay, someone gets it. I'm not alone. And I can just let out all of my frustrations and fears and difficulties right now in this safe space. And so I think really just allowing a safe space for that is huge. And one other thing is really just talking about it more. And I think that's one of the big positives of the pandemic is that it's really brought to the forefront how much people are struggling both before and now. And I think there have been a lot of positive changes to try to address that, address the issues with trainees and practicing physicians in different healthcare systems and whatnot. And that's been a huge positive. And so really just almost just knowing that we're focusing on it or working on it, I think makes a big difference to everybody. That's great. Yeah. I'm not in an academic center, but I do have residents PEDS residents that rotate with me every so often. And it's just me and them. It's one-on-one. So that is the perfect opportunity to just on a random day, pull them aside. Not that hard to do. And like you said, make sure it's quiet, make sure you've got time and give them that safe space. Yeah. I'm sure that's going to go a long way. And every so often we might catch someone who might have died by suicide. One of my first podcast guests actually was someone who spoke about pediatric suicide. And she said that's something that needs to be talked about at the dinner table, because if you Mm -hmm. don't ask, you're not going to find out. And so we need to start asking. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, And even just a couple of weeks ago, I had a a resident who I could tell had a patient encounter that really was difficult for her. And she was at the end of her rope anyway on a tough rotation and whatnot. And so I said, hey, do you need to talk for a minute? She's like, no, I have to keep seeing the patients and get going. I said, your patient can wait for five minutes. Let's talk for a minute. And just a little thing like that really, I think, made a difference. And then after the clinic session, we talked a little bit more. And then I said, hey, is it okay if I text you or call you in a day or two and check in, see how you're doing? And she's like, yeah, actually, that would be really nice. Those are small things, but they do go a long way. Yeah. And to your point earlier, you don't have to wait to see where it's someone who's obviously struggling. Mm -hmm. Like it should be just whenever there's an opportunity, make the opportunity, but just make it happen. We all, as the attendings, it's our responsibility. And I think those will be some of our favorite moments too, right? From doing what we do. It'll be some of the more, more profound and memorable moments of our careers. Absolutely. In some ways you're not acting as a therapist, but a little bit acting right. as a therapist. So sure. to that point, what's been your biggest takeaway from therapy? When you look back at what you have accomplished, no matter how hard it was in the moment, and you think, man, I did that. And I can do harder things than I might give myself credit for. I went through some really tough times. And I considered 
leaving medicine. I had passive suicidal thoughts of, I just wish I were dead because that would be easier, but I did make it through. And I think I can do harder things than I think I can. But also I think the notion of allowing myself some grace has come from that too. And those have probably been the biggest things kind of day to day that I think about the most that came from therapy. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So where can people find you? Where can people find the book? So my website is kylebradfordjones.com. There are links there to where you can buy the book. You can get it through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. On my website is a link so that you can find your local independent bookstore and order it through them. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at kbjones11. I have a Facebook page, facebook.com backslash kbjones11. Yeah, any and all of those things. I love to hear from people and hopefully hear from some of the listeners. Well, one big takeaway for me is the next time I do have a resident rotating with me, I will definitely have a sit down and take the opportunity to give them some safe space. So thanks for all your insight and all you're doing to move the needle on medicine and for laying it all bare for us for the benefit of our colleagues. So thanks for all that you do. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. One last thing before we go. Remember Advice Media? Don't forget to schedule a demo with them to receive a $60 gift card and strategic insight on what your current online presence is doing or not doing for you. Contact Advice Media at drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.